your Bibles, please, for our first reading in the New Testament to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Here now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are... uh, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed." As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up into Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. All right, so it is our 
our want when we have a, uh, a new chapter to do, or sorry, a new book to do a, a bit of an introduction. So as we think of the historical setting and authorship and dating of this book, let's give our attention to that. First of all, the author is obviously the Apostle Paul. The first word speaks to that. Um, secondly, the date of writing. This is, a, this is a difficult one because there are some very astute New Testament scholars that have disagreed with one another on when and how or where and what circumstances the book was written. Uh, I'll give you my sense of it. I think it was written near A.D. 51 after the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. And I believe that what is being described in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, in Galatians 2 verse 1 is the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. Okay? So what we have chronologically in verses 1 through 24 where Paul is describing some of his autobiography is all of that is completed by the end of chapter 9 in the book of Acts. We'll, we'll hear about Paul's conversion and then him returning to Tarsus, which is a chief city in Cilicia. Notice he says here at the end of verse 23, or, or sorry, 21, afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now this creates a little bit of a difficulty, but I think it's the best view. The reason is, or the difficulty is that uh, Acts chapter 9, between the conversion of Paul, the time that he spends in Damascus, and his return to Cilicia, we never really hear about what he describes here in chapter 1 of Galatians. That doesn't mean it didn't take place. It just means that Luke didn't record it there. It wasn't germane to the story that he was telling. Okay? So <clears throat> there was a time here where Paul says that he's going to spend uh, some time with the Lord in Arabia. And then after that, uh, three years after that, he's going to go up to Jerusalem to see Peter. He abides with him for 15 days. And then he returns to Cilicia. None of that is recorded in Acts chapter 9 except for Paul's return to Cilicia. Okay, um, I believe that it is written the, uh, to the Galatian churches, and this is a very important point of ecclesiology. We differ from many of our beloved brethren in our view of ecclesiology, and this verse really points that up. So we will write, or we will see Paul writing to the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus. He'll speak of the church in Jerusalem. Now we know that in especially Jerusalem and Corinth and Ephesus, also the church in Antioch, we, will, we are fairly certain that they were not meeting in one location like we are here today. Jerusalem, we know, had 8,000 members in the church. 8,000 converts had, had come over the preaching of, of Peter's first two sermons. They didn't have a a megachurch that would house 8,000 people. Plus they had a multiplicity of officers. And yet they are called the church in Jerusalem because they were under one presbyterial form of government. The same is true in Antioch. The same is true in Ephesus where Paul stayed two and a half years and in uh, Corinth where Paul was there for 18 months preaching. So in all of those times then, in each of these cities, each city is counted as a church under one presbyterial government, although they met most likely in, diff in different locations because of their sheer size and numbers. Now notice here that Paul says we're writing to the 
churches in Galatia. We see the same thing, don't we, in the book of Revelation. To the seven churches which are in Asia Minor. And what would we, what would we mean then? Could we, could we look at the church in Jerusalem and go to a meeting of the elders there and could we say there are many churches in this city? Of course we could. But it can also be known as a church. But then all of the churches throughout the whole wide world can also be spoken of as the church. Okay, so why does he use the word churches here? And this is, again, a a view that is not the majority, but it is your pastor's view, that Paul is writing to the churches that were founded in his first missionary journey. The churches in the region of Galatia, which would be Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Antioch, Pisidia, where he and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey from Antioch. Remember, they sailed to Cyprus, and then to Pisidia, uh, and then through, to, to those churches. And then they circled back through them, appointed elders. Then they came back to Antioch in chapter 14 and gave their report of that first missionary journey. So they're called churches because you would not normally consider churches in different cities in apostolic parlance to be one quote church you would consider the church worldwide to be the church but when you're talking about cities you would consider each one of those cities to have a church in it no matter if it met in multiple places or not and when you consider churches spread over a region like galatia well then that's going to be a number of churches so written to the churches of Galatia. The purpose of the writing then is to correct the departure of the Galatian churches from the purity of the gospel. And we will remember what the what the uh, the uh, Jerusalem council was all about. It was all about Judaizing. Did you circumcise those believers in Asia Minor? No. Well you should have. No I shouldn't have. Yes you should have. No. Yeah. No. Well, let's go to Jerusalem and figure this out. And so they did. And so they made decrees to be kept in the churches that were in Asia Minor. And Paul and Silas went back and delivered those decrees to them from Jerusalem. Okay? So, a brief sort of outline then. Uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 1 is the salutation. 6 through 9 is what many scholars have called the exordium. A very powerful exhortation. Then in chapter 1 verse 10, through the end of chapter 2, the apostle defends his office, his calling, um, his, uh, his preaching, and so on. And then even his standing against Peter when Peter would have done something that by his actions might have thrown confusion on the gospel. Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. Then in chapter 3, verses, uh, ver- verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 5 and verse 12, although we could divide this into many sub-places, still we are, uh, this, is the pro- th- this is the proper letter, establishing the gospel as all of grace and repudiating the argument of salvation by any works at all, showing the reason for the giving of the law, that we are continuing in Abraham even in the giving of the law, And that the law did not disannul the covenant and the promise that God made with Abraham. Very technical treatise in chapters 3 and 4. 
Um, I remember one of the things we used to do on Sunday evenings with my children when they were home is we would, we would play Stump Dad. And so they would open up to the scriptures somewhere and begin reading. They'd read a verse at a time, and they would start stringing verses together until I could tell them what passage they were reading. And I remember often there were times when I would be confused between Romans and Galatians because of the way the terminology works between those two books. I don't think I would do that anymore. I think I've improved since those days. I hope I have anyway. All right, and then uh, chapter 5, 13 through 6, 8, the character of those who have received the gospel by faith, how faith does not translate into license. And then finally, uh, 6, 11 through 18 is epilogue and summary. And so we want to remember the book of Galatians as the gospel of grace. Just, Just take the G's straight through. Galatians is about the gospel of grace. Okay? All right, well, let's begin here in chapter 1 then with the exposition. Verses 1 through 5. Notice the difference, the distinctiveness between Paul's introduction of himself here and all of the other introductions in every other book. You'll, You'll see that. It's obvious if you look at them. There is no, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Uh, Praying always for you without ceasing. None of that. Not that he's not doing those things. But there's something else at stake here. The Galatians are in danger of departing from the gospel of grace. And they have imperiled their eternal souls. And so Paul, if you will, gets right down to brass tacks. Right? So my apostleship, he will say, is not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ. And God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then all those who were with me and were writing unto you churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace. And then notice, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God, to whom be glory forever and ever, and so on. So Paul goes right to the the atonement work of Christ. Um, Christ has been given for our sins. There's no earning with us. No, he is given for our sins. So he's emphasizing his apostolic authority and the sinfulness of men in this uh, salutation. Then in verse 6, beginning with these two faithful words, I marvel. I marvel. It is a marvel, isn't it, when someone departs from the gospel of Christ's free grace into some sort of merit religion. And yet this is what was going on in the the Galatian churches. Paul will say at the beginning of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Here he says it as, I marvel, perhaps a little bit more modestly here. But notice he says, that you're soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another. Beloved, let's make sure we get that in our minds, burned indelibly, that we're never confused about that. There is no other gospel. What I'm about to say is, I don't take any pleasure in saying. Okay? It is indeed faith in Christ and his gospel. Faith in... Do we have another problem? Okay, well, let me know if you need something. It is faith in Christ and his gospel that saves. 
as we saw, uh, although it's not exactly our faith, right? But it, is, but it is indeed having those right things in understanding. Now, beloved, that means that you cannot be saved by believing a false gospel. And may I say it this way, as it was in the days of Paul, there is nothing new under the sun, and there are many things masquerading as the gospel in the church, in the visible church today, that is indeed no gospel at all. And believing that will land folks in a, you know, they it will get them a ticket to eternal destruction. Uh, one of the great big visible churches throughout the world, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, has anathematized the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it, yes, it has really gone that far. They have said in their, in their Trenton documents that if anyone believes that someone is made righteous by faith alone, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Paul said, if anyone perverts the gospel of Christ, let him be accursed. Notice that, that casting a curse at the apostle when he's already cursed you will not avail in the day of judgment. So believing a false gospel is indeed, uh, uh, as Samuel Rutherford called it, soul murder. And so uh, uh, Rutherford will, will also speak about proper penalties for those who are heresiarchs, those who lead people into apostasy, a departure from the gospel of Christ. Uh, he will follow the lead there of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 13, right, who says... If someone entices you to believe a false gospel, your hand shall be first against him, and so on. This is serious stuff, in other words. We don't get to quibble here. We don't get to equivocate. We don't get to change the gospel that is preached in the scriptures. And anything short of that gospel is worthy of cursing. That's what Paul says. Let him be Accursed, And Paul will give three entities here that deserve to be accursed if they come back and preach a different gospel. The first is if an angel from heaven, if an angel from heaven preaches this, let him be accursed. Doesn't matter that he looks supernatural. Doesn't matter what he looks like. Doesn't matter that he's got shining robes. Doesn't matter that he's fearful in appearance. If it's a different gospel, let him be accursed. Paul will say, any other man. Doesn't matter if these guys present themselves as angels of light. Satan's ministers always do that. And then he says, and if I come back and teach you something different, let me be accursed. So he sort of covers all the bases there, right? So that's how serious a matter we are, we are speaking of here. And it is not, beloved, divisive. It is not divisive. Let me say it that way. Maybe nobody knows what... Divisive is makes you think of long division and you start to quake or something. It's, it's, it is not divisive to insist on the right, the true, the biblical gospel. That's loving. That's the most loving thing we can do. It's divisive to depart to another gospel. That's what division is. Because as faith unites us to Christ, apostasy divides us from him. And anything that, that uh, forms schism between us and Christ must be excised and cut out of our midst. 
So Paul is very serious here. And that means that we should be very serious also. Um, at, At the end of that, then, he will say, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. And I will say to you, it's very, very simply said, that if you want a big following, if you want a lot of people signing up for your ministry, if you want a mega church, if you want a great big budget in our day in America, then pervert the gospel of Christ and you can have every bit of that and more. That's not to say that every ministry that's large is like that. You know me, I wouldn't say that. I don't know, I haven't examined every ministry. But pleasing men is contrary to the ministry of the gospel. We, uh, we, have, we have this minister in our, in our denomination, he has, he has a funny motion when he preaches. He'll just, you know, me, I'm, I'm pretty animated we have some guys that are all over the, you know, the front, but he just stands in the pulpit and he, you know, do this as he's preaching. Gentlemen, we preach to an audience of one. Well, that's right, isn't it? We seek to please the Lord Jesus Christ in our preaching. Okay, everything's okay. We surrounded him with some really scary-looking guys, and he's probably gone by now. All right. Okay, so now we move on to to the next section of uh, of this uh, of this chapter. We want to look at verse eleven. Paul will make some some statements here that are 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 interesting. The first he says, "I certify you, brethren," and then the other thing he will say a little bit later on in the passage, if I could find it here. Hmm. Now the things. Let's see. There it is, verse 20. Now the things which I wrote unto you, behold, before God I lie not. He's saying some very, what what we would call solemn statements pertaining to his telling the truth here. Uh, There's a a reasonable expectation that the Galatian churches might take less seriously what he's saying than they ought to take it less seriously than they ought. And so he will double down by his oath here. Before God, I lie not. And we've talked about this before, lawful oaths and vows, when particular weight and moment are required, they are lawful and ought to be used, not to be refused. We don't want our speech to be punctuated with, I swear, I swear, I swear, obviously. But notice that Paul uses these solemn asseverations, as we would call them, in old English language. Okay, so he did not receive his gospel from man, but he taught he was taught it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, by the revelation of Christ. All right. So this revelation of Jesus Christ means that the apostle Paul spoke directly to Jesus Christ about the gospel. And it is my view that when he says, after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, that Paul and Christ enjoyed a three-year communion like Christ did with the other disciples. Now, I wouldn't be dogmatic on that, but, but it seems to point in that direction to me. He learned what he learned from the Lord Jesus Christ. We heard just a few weeks ago, didn't we, 
uh, a couple of weeks ago from Second Corinthians that there was a man caught up into the third heavens, whether in the body, out of the body, I do not know, right? That Paul was talking about himself there, that he received some things by direct revelation from Christ. He's speaking about that here. The gospel that I received, I didn't learn it from men. I learned it from Christ. I saw the risen Christ on Damascus. I communed with the risen Christ after that time, is what Paul is saying. Very important stuff. Okay, so then he will, he, will, uh, he will infer his veracity, not only from that revelation, but from his past, having, quote, been there, done that, and left the Jews' religion. Why are you going back to the Jews' religion? I myself was there for a time. But I'm not there anymore because God separated me out from my mother's womb to reveal his son in me, verse 15, that I might preach him among the heathen and immediately then I conferred not with flesh and blood. You can't say that I'm just repeating what I've heard from other men. This is by revelation of Jesus Christ. I did not go up to Jerusalem right away to commune with them that were apostles before me. I went into Arabia, returned again to Damascus. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. And we don't have that recorded in scripture anywhere. This is just Paul's testimony about that time in Acts chapter 9 that is yet unmentioned until here. But of the other apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now, the things which I wrote unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. And then afterwards he went to Syria and Cilicia. And we'll read toward the end of Acts. Okay, so let's, let's remember the chronology here for a moment. In Acts chapter 9, Paul is converted. And after some stuff, he ends up back in Tarsus in Cilicia. Then chapter 10 has something else going on. We leave the scene of Paul. In Acts chapter 10 of Acts, we, we hear about Peter and Cornelius, right? And the conversion of the Gentiles, the first fruits of the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius at the preaching of the apostle Peter. Anybody remember what happens in, uh, toward the end of chapter 10? Yeah, so, uh, so to, towards the end of chapter 10, then we have, we have, um, we have Peter... Uh, Let's move on into chapter 11. In chapter 11, then, uh, the gospel goes as far as Antioch. We hear about those men that were scattered at the persecution of Stephen. And there are several men that begin preaching in Antioch. The, the people are called Christians first at Antioch. And then Barnabas comes from Jerusalem to Antioch. And what does he find? He finds the grace of God there and he encourages all of the saints in Antioch. And then in what is it, verse, verse 25 or 26 of chapter 11, what does he do? He goes and gets Paul in Cilicia and brings him back to Antioch to help with the ministry there. In chapter 9, Barnabas had introduced Paul to the saints in Jerusalem just to introduce him so that they would understand that everything was okay with him. All right? So, all of this chronology seems to be tracking, in other words. We can find places in the book of Acts where we can tie what Paul says here. Now, afterwards, I came to the region of Syria, Cilicia, and it was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, except that they knew that although I was once a persecutor, now I was a believer in Christ, and they glorified God in me. And that's how the chapter ends. 
So there's a lot of chronology there. There's a lot of movement there. But there's also that overarching commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we cannot, indeed, have any less commitment in ourselves than that. All right, with that, that's the